Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City. On this show, we change the question from what's wrong with Baltimore to what's next for Baltimore. Today on the show, we're discussing the future of the Internet, specifically the future of social media and online networking. Now, as of 2019, according to We Are Social, the number of Internet users worldwide is 4.38 billion people. Of those billions, 3.4 billion are using social media sites. And the number of mobile phone users in 2019 is 5.2 billion. That's a lot of people connected via the World Wide Web. And it's hard to believe, but the Internet as we know it today has only been in existence for about 30 years. The way we talk, communicate, work, and live has changed dramatically as a result of its inception. We now walk around with miniature computers in our pockets, always connected, always in communication. But in recent years, with false news reports, data stealing, election tampering, privacy invasions, and hate speech amplified, many people are blaming social media for many of society's ills. Facebook and Twitter, the two sites most often in the news for these issues, seem to be constantly addressing some sort of damage control. Some people are saying enough. There are even campaigns like Freedom from Facebook and Quit Facebook Day that have gained traction in recent years. So are we just talking about the potential demise of a specific website, or is there a potential here for a radical shift in the way we use and view the Internet and social media? The first to join us in this conversation is Jeremy Kaplan. He's the editor-in-chief of Digital Trends, an online technology publication. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Wes. So you spend your time and your focus thinking about the fads, the trends, the things that are going on, how people are living now and how people are going to be living in the future. Um, How are people assessing and using and accessing the Internet now, its usability, uh, what its functions are, and how do you see that actually changing uh, in the years ahead? Well, there's been a an enormous transformation. You, you mentioned 30 years we've had the Internet and, and how far we've come since then. If you think back to where the Internet first got its start, it was really about connecting people, right? It was two scientists from different universities across the country trying to talk to each other. And that's the Internet that we've all known for 20 years, 25 years at this point. Um, How do I connect to my friend? How do I talk to somebody else? And that's what we've been using the Internet for. But if you look at what's actually happening on the Internet these days, that's not necessarily the bulk of it. In fact, a lot of what's happening on the Internet is devices talking to other devices. Hmm. It's really a fundamental shift here. So it's Internet-connected gadgets at your house talking to each other, talking to servers, talking to the cloud, talking to you via that app on your phone. Uh, so I think that that's been a real fundamental shift. The, the, the starting point that we had for the Internet was connecting and communication. And a lot of the current use of it has transformed to more of a utilitarian thing, which is not to say that we're not communicating. 
I think we actually are communicating substantially more, just in different ways. But I think one thing that also happens with, uh, with these platforms and the technology around them is there is a sense that these platforms should be built on a sense of trust that, that it, there's, a, there's a sense of trust amongst the users, there's a sense of trust amongst the, uh, amongst the, the people who are, who are starting and generating accounts, who are placing their content on, uh, you know, onto these sites. And where do you think that the trust measure and the trust meter is right now between consumers and the sites that have been created in order to, uh, in, in order to propel this level of communication? Well, that's a really good question and a really thorny one to unpack, too. Um, uh, Most consumers have this love-hate relationship at this point with a lot of these social media platforms. Facebook, in particular, has been all over the media for a number of missteps that they have made. And we have seen Mark Zuckerberg come out and apologize time and time again for mistakes he's made and said, we're going to learn from them, we're going to do this and that. Most recently, the Facebook F8 conference was uh, earlier in the week, and they, Mark Zuckerberg said Facebook is going to become a privacy-first company. All of their platforms are going to be privacy-centric. The reality is that Facebook is really no longer meaningful for a, a lot of people, in particular younger generations. They're less concerned with what's going on on Facebook because they just aren't going to use it. But some of the other platforms, which have had fewer of these same concerns and fewer of these missteps, are still very popular. So Instagram, for example, has become the one thing that everyone's using. Uh, And I don't think it has the same issues surrounding it that sites like Facebook and Twitter do, Um, which is kind of weird because most people don't really realize, but that's own. it's the same company. Facebook owns Instagram. So when you're worried about Facebook and you say, I'm just going to go over to Instagram, well, you're you're not actually changing anything. But in, in, in which ways then can these media companies rebound, right? I mean, as you said, you know, we, Mark Zuckerberg has, has apologized multiple times, testified, uh, you know, spent, uh, spent time in living rooms of people all over the country. Uh, how can that sense of, how can that sense of reliability and transparency be rebuilt uh, when people talk talk about ways they are going to communicate the type of information that they you know that they have, and particularly as we're now getting into, it's not even just about what's happening with your data. You know, there are also questions about things like election tampering. Uh, you know, how exactly does how exactly do these companies rebound with that as a context of which they have to come back from? I think it's going to take a lot of time. I think more than anything else, it's going to take time, and it's going to. And it's going to be – what we're going to need is time without a continuous drumbeat of problems discovered, security flaws, hmm. breaches of our privacy and our trust. And we haven't had a, a month go by in the last year or two without that story coming up and being at the top of the headlines. So regardless of what steps Zuckerberg and these other uh, Internet pioneers make – we're just going to need some time away from from some of the mistakes. Mm-hmm. And until we get there, I, I think it's going to be very hard for consumers to regain their trust in these platforms. I think a big step is going to be uh, regulation from the government. And at this point, I think everyone realized that it's necessary. The challenge is that the technology world moves dramatically faster than the legislative one. Yeah. So even as uh, lawmakers are working to draw up rules, 
we have new platforms and new technologies being invented that will supersede them and make them unnecessary. It's very hard for them to stay on top of these things. So uh, to the extent that some of the Internet pioneers themselves can create those laws and shape them and say, here's what you guys need to do, here's how we're going to self-regulate, I think that would be a big step forward. Uh, something we haven't really seen from Mark Zuckerberg, for example. He's done a, a great deal of apologizing and hasn't said, we're going to do this tomorrow, which would be useful. I'm still waiting to hear some more than just promises and words from those guys. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think one of the uh, concerns that people had, even when you watched the Mark Zuckerberg testifying, was, you know, there was a lot of conversation and comments afterwards where how many lawmakers actually even fully understood what he was talking about? Um, you mm-hmm. know, how, how do you regulate something that is moving at a speed and at a pace uh, that that uh, it's not it's, it's both that uh, it's difficult for policy to keep up with. But then it's also it's, it's even difficult for 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 an expansive mind to keep up with where this thing can go and how fast this thing has moved and how it really has changed the way we do everything in the way we think about our life and our work. And it's been a huge transformation for communication itself. One of the biggest impacts on society has been the changing nature of communication thanks to social media. If you think about, if you think about how we communicate with each other, uh, there's obviously voice we're talking right now. We're used to text messaging where we're sending message notes back and forth. But because social media has become so pervasive and because technology is the backbone of that, there's more than just words that are being shared these days. There's memes, there's GIFs, there's emojis, and there's bitmojis, and there's avatars. And the, the way that uh, young people are communicating across these platforms is just not the same thing that people were doing five or ten years ago, uh, which I think makes it particularly hard to police and to stay on top of as well, uh, especially if you're a platform like Facebook. You can't create a a, a parsing algorithm that looks for inappropriate memes. You know, one of the challenges that they faced with uh, the hacking scandal and the Russians that came up is it's hard to look through a, a graphic and detect the subtle message that's being indicated by the text le- that's typed into that thing. Uh, and it's the changing nature of how we communicate itself has become a real, a, a really interesting thing to watch. Jeremy Kaplan is the editor-in-chief of Digital Trends. Jeremy, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining us. Been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you're just joining us, coming up, we'll discuss big policy trends in tech, as well as how digital marketing has changed and adapted to the social media world. Stay tuned. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City. On today's show, we've been discussing the future of the Internet 
and social media. And joining us now is Kat Zakreski, a technology policy reporter from the Washington Post. Kat, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Kat, you cover such a wide variety of topics, but one question that keeps coming up from people, specifically about the Internet, deals with privacy concerns and how their data is being used, particularly on sites like Facebook. Can you trace some of the developments that we've seen over the years and how companies and platforms like Facebook are responding to them? Sure. Well, I think that's um, been kind of the core of my beat over the past few months is just watching this transition of people waking up to all the ways that these social media companies might be using and at times abusing their data. I mean, I think for years, I mean, we're 15 years into using these social networks. And um, for many years, people were just kind of sharing data, thinking only about the friends and family members who might be seeing it. And uh, more recently, there's been some data privacy scandals that have caused us to reconsider that. When you look back um, over the past year, it's been a really rough one for Facebook, beginning with the Cambridge Analytica scandal, which was last spring. Um, And that's when we learned that um, Facebook's policies were rather loose with sharing data with third-party developers. And a political consultancy firm with ties to Donald Trump was able to gather a wide swath of data about many Facebook users without their knowledge and consent. And since then, it's just been one story after another. We've seen data privacy breaches. We've seen reports of Facebook storing our passwords insecurely. And so it's really been a reckoning for the company and policymakers around the world are thinking more and more about how they might need to hold these companies to higher standards when it comes to privacy. And I think one of the things where where there's that big concern about how they are, you know, influencing the the transmission of this information, almost using the data that you're giving them to then manipulate the type of content, the type of information, the kind of fear-mongering that they know that you're most susceptible to based on the information that you're giving them and how it can leave people feeling very, feeling very vulnerable. Do you think that we are in any better a position to be able to address it now than we were in a position two or four years ago to address it then? interesting question, especially as we get closer and closer to the 2020 election. And, um, you know, we're thinking a lot about how data, whether we're talking about Cambridge Analytica or other situations where, you know, the Russian internet trolls were manipulating data that we saw on social media leading into the election. And I think, honestly, it's still an open question. Certainly, Facebook has been taking steps to make it tougher for this type of manipulation to happen. They're you know, really locking down some of the access that they used to give to third-party developers to make it harder for other parties to get access to this type of information. They're, they've introduced new privacy controls to people, so it's a little bit more transparent about how, you know, your data is being used. Um, so, you know, we're seeing incremental improvements, but at the same time, um, you know, I, I think this is a situation where as social media keeps evolving, um, so do other actors who want to use this to influence public opinion or, or maybe for nefarious purposes. So I think, you know, what we could see now is just kind of this playbook evolving and, uh, you know, finding new ways to use these massive amounts of data online to, um, you know, influence how voters are thinking. And, and we're even seeing how the situation plays itself out uh, after, you know, current events, disasters or tragedies, et cetera. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by what ended up happening after, you know, in Sri Lanka after the bombings. Um, For our listeners, what actually happened to social media in Sri Lanka after the bombings, and and why was that so problematic? So what happened 
happened after the bombings in uh, Sri Lanka um, was that the government actually decided to block most of the major American social media platforms. Um, their reasoning was that they didn't want to see disinformation run rampant on the services. Um, it's a big issue for companies to police disinformation around the world, but it's particularly different, di uh, difficult in a country like Sri Lanka where, you know, the languages that Facebook uses to train its algorithms or the people it has on staff might not be familiar with the local languages in the area and be able to spot misinformation the same way that they could in the United States or Europe. So the government took this really bold step um, to block all social media services. They just, um, you know, this past week brought them back online. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's kind of something that, civil rights advocates, internet freedom advocates are pretty concerned about at the moment because you could see how, although the government took this step with the intention of stopping disinformation, it also could have a chilling effect on free speech if people aren't able to get messages out there. There's also a lot of concern, I mean, in the wake of a national disaster when this happened, if you think about particularly for international visitors who are in the country who rely on services like Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, to get messages out, to communicate with family. They weren't able to access any of those without VPNs. And so it's, it puts people in a really tricky position, and it kind of highlights the larger bind here, right? I mean, constantly we're weighing, you know, the harmful things that can happen with these platforms with harmful content with violence, with disinformation spreading on them, but also weighing that against the positive benefits that they at times bring um, in, in moments of great vulnerability and hardship, like um, free speech, getting news across. And, and so uh, we really saw that play out over the last few weeks uh, in Sri Lanka. And the concerns about the, the, the linking and the, and the algorithms, I mean, that that's not a false concern, right? You you, you saw what happened uh, after the fire at Notre Dame, where you know right. YouTube's algorithm immediately linked it to videos from nine eleven. Uh, so in 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 a situation like that, you know, how did they respond? It, it's a tough situation, right? I mean, so with the Notre Dame situation, we saw YouTube's algorithms mistake the video of the burning cathedral for a video of 9-11. And so recently, um, under pressure, YouTube has introduced this new feature where um, subject matters that are you know, vulnerable to hoaxes, like 9-11, they'll have a little box pop up with here's the factual information that you need to know about what happened on 9-11 to kind of counter any fake news or, or hoaxes that might be available on the site about that. And so that box started popping up when people were watching videos on the service about Notre Dame. and um, you know, although YouTube fairly quickly realized this issue, they disabled that panel from popping up on these videos of the Notre Dame fires. I mean, that was a huge problem because once people saw the 9-11 fires popping up on YouTube related to the cathedral, I mean, that immediately sparked concerns that this was a terrorist attack. And so then you saw it kind of spread from one platform to another where Suddenly, you have a lot of rumors and hoaxes running rampant on Twitter where people are saying that this fire is a terrorist attack. And so that was really a situation where we saw how these issues spread from platform to platform, from company to company. And although YouTube acted fairly quickly once they heard these reports from users, it, it just shows um, kind of how difficult this problem is to contain and really 
you know, when the companies take one step to counter one issue, um, it can lead down this kind of rabbit hole sometimes where they create a whole new set of problems like we saw in the cathedral fires. And, and one final question that I have is, is just about how users engage with their social media. Uh, one thing I thought was that it's particularly after the privacy concerns issue that that was going to significantly change people's behavior when it came to the way they interacted with their social media sites. Um, I, I think a couple realities sunk in. One was how difficult it was for people to remove themselves from the social media sites just practically, right? Just in terms of the content that they already have, the data they already have on you. The second piece is just emotionally how difficult it was for people to, to remove themselves from, from social media. Uh, how do you see the way we interact with social media and these sites changing, particularly as privacy concerns continue to seep in? Do we have a, a, a essentially an, as, an asset that at this point is almost too big to fail and too all-encompassing to fail? Or do you see there is a tipping point where it will actually change the way we interact with these things that have become so omnipresent? It's a really great question because it has been really interesting to watch that even with scandal after scandal, privacy concern after privacy concern, we've seen Facebook's revenue, their total number of users around the world continue to grow. And I mean, I think what we are seeing, though, is the company is waking up to the way people use social media is rapidly changing. And so um, what we're seeing is Yes, we're not seeing a broad exodus at the moment of people from these services, even with all the stories that are coming up. But some of the decisions that Facebook's made lately show that the way people use these services day to day is shifting. So rather than being what Facebook describes as a digital public square where you share information with hundreds or thousands of people who follow you, the company is shifting a lot more to smaller private forms of communication. And that's really in line with the way people's habits are changing. So the company is investing heavily in, 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 in encrypted messaging. They're investing heavily in groups and also um, ephemeral content, like the stories that you see on Snapchat and uh, Instagram. And so I think that what we're seeing is the company realizing like, okay, people don't want their content to be online forever. They don't want to be sharing this with all 2,000 people that they maybe went to high school and college with who are still Facebook friends with them. And we're seeing this broader shift toward more one-to-one, uh, smaller forms of communication, more privacy-focused with the encry- encryption aspect. Kat Zakreski is a technology policy reporter with The Washington Post. Kat, that has been, this has been fascinating. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. So joining us now is a guest with an incredibly impressive resume. Marie Weiss is a senior marketing executive and founder of Marketing Copilot an award-winning digital marketing agency that has helped hundreds of entrepreneurs build their websites into lead generation and sales machines. She's also the author of an award-winning business book, You Can't Be Everywhere, a common-sense approach to digital marketing for any business, and she's the host of two successful business podcasts, The Common Sense Marketer and Women Talk Tech. Now, Marie, I know the name of your book is You Can't Be Everywhere, but I think you have actually figured out a way to be everywhere. So thank you so much for also being here right now and joining us on the show. 
Oh, thank you for having me. And I, I actually, I, I think that's, we're going to talk about that on your show about the internet, but the internet helps us see places. It's just a matter of, are we in the right place at the right time? So there's a lot of people who believe that, well, my business isn't a tech business. My business is not, you know, I don't have a business like Instagram. So therefore these type of tools are not useful for me, uh, for my type of business. What's your response to that? Well, instead of asking the question about, well, what's the type of business, I always like to ask the question, well, what are your type of customers? A business only exists if you have customers who are buying from you. And so you really should ask the question, who are my customers, how do they buy, and how do they want to consume information about the types of products or services that I offer? And that's really the place you should start. So if, for example, you're running a cupcake shop or a bakery, Instagram is a fantastic tool for showcasing your work, and people love to look at cupcakes on Instagram or Pinterest. So that would make sense to build up your following there because that's where people go to look for it. Putting your cupcake business on LinkedIn might not be the best thing to do because that's where business people are looking for business solutions, and they're not looking for cupcakes. So you need to understand who your customers are and how they buy something, and that's how you choose your channels appropriately. And what I think has happened in the first generation of social media is people just saw these tools, thought they should be there, wanted to jump on them, and didn't realize that unless your customer is there doing something meaningful in relation to your business, your product or service, then you shouldn't be there. And when you see how they think about the usage of these type of platforms, um, to make a person comfortable. If a person isn't, isn't, isn't a digital native and they're not, they haven't come up comfortable in this, how does a person get comfortable, even if they understand how important it is to their business, but it's just not something they really came up with a framework or an understanding of? Yeah, that's, that's a great question because I come across a lot of people who say, I don't want to spend time on Facebook, even if that's where my customers are. Or, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't want to be posting something every day on an Instagram account. What I always tell people is the great thing about social media is it's an opportunity to listen and learn. And maybe you don't start right off by posting or putting stuff up on your business, but what you do is you start following and you start listening and you start seeing who's there and you start seeing how people are participating. It took me a long time with various tools that I was using with my own children that I just didn't like and didn't understand, like Snapchat. I just didn't get it. But that's what my kids were using and that's what they were doing. And so all I did was just listen and learn in the beginning and over time realized that Snapchat wasn't a tool I wanted to accommodate into my everyday life. So if a business owner or somebody who's trying to market online is not what you call a digital native, and that's a great expression, I love that, that they need to participate by listening first and foremost so they can understand. And from there, they can decide if it's a tool they want to use or a strategy they want to pursue. But force yourself to do it because that's where your customers are often searching for things, going to talk to other experts about stuff. They're looking for solutions in various forms of search, whether it's in a social media tool, whether it's on Google, on YouTube, and you're missing out if you don't have some type of presence online today. Now, you'd look at talk about the things that people have in terms of their online presence, and you look at particularly some of the social media sites, Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. There are certain people who feel like the privacy concerns that have been widely talked about and, and widely understood 
uh, and the disillusionment that has come from that, that that has made it a bridge too far for people to be able to really feel comfortable. Do you see new social media sites that are going to have the ability to enter the gap? Uh, or do you think that the market share that Snapchat, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera, the market share that they have taken, that there is no room left for other people to be able to penetrate, even despite the challenges some of these platforms have had? Well, like all things that have evolved over time, and we can go back through history and see that history really does repeat itself. I think with respect to the internet and technology, it's just repeating itself faster. The next new thing is going to come along. Um, but we've let the genie out of the bottle, and the internet isn't going away. And the way we use the internet today, we've just become so used to being able to pick up our phone and order dinner or order an Uber. We're used to being able to order a book within 30 seconds right from our phone on Amazon. We've let other types of technologies into our house, like Google Home and Alexa. And I think that the average consumer really doesn't understand security and privacy issues. And, you know, posting your entire holiday vacation on Facebook and letting people know that you were traveling and exactly where you were, I don't think people understood the ramifications of that in some cases. And that now people are going to be following them on Facebook and pushing content at them because of what they've posted. I think people are just starting to understand that. And as they back away from these tools or move towards new tools, because, for example, I don't think people realize how much data is getting collected on a Google Home device, and we know how many of those got sold in the last 18 months, so they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. All that data is being collected now and being used for the purpose of what can we do with that data to market to people and, and how can we use it. Things will just keep evolving. It's not going to go away anytime soon because we've become too used to tools as a society. And I think what that means for businesses is they just have to get a lot savvier in understanding their customers. They have to really get to know their customers. They have to resist the urge to mass market and to be more targeted in who they're speaking to and how those customers want to interact with them. And I think that's something that, you know, small business in particular struggles with because they don't have the budgets to figure out how to do that. And those are some of the issues we've tried to tackle in the book about the way to, to do that, even if you don't have deep pockets from a marketing perspective, of really focusing on the customer and how to turn the information about the customer that you know about the people who buy from you today into a way to create a better marketing platform for you. And I, and I think that's the way things are going to evolve going forward. And when you talk about things like the you know marketing, there was a time in marketing when people were heavily focused on uh, things like the email newsletter. Uh, and using that form of technology. Is that still the case? Or when we talk about how fast things evolve, that things like email newsletters that were so revolutionary at the time have now become passe? Well, email itself has gotten a lot more sophisticated. And I don't think email is going away anytime soon because the email address itself is our digital market around the web. Every individual has an email address, and in most cases, you require an email address to sign up for accounts, to order stuff, <laughs> to confirm an order. So the email address itself is not going away anytime soon. How we use that email address and the sophistication of what we might want to send 
how we might want to send it. And I'm, you know, I'm sure you've heard talk of things like personalization. I think that's where people are becoming more sophisticated with email, and maybe that's why the email newsletter itself doesn't work as well as it used to, because now we've got other ways to use email marketing. Um, but un- unless we have another way to exist on the web without an email address, Email is very important. Email marketing is very important. And I think businesses need to embrace that and continue to figure out the best way to use email in their, in their marketing mix. So if someone's listening to this, this interview right now and is saying, listen, I have a brand new business or I want to start a brand new business, what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give them when it comes to harnessing tech? and the internet for your, bene- for your benefit, regardless of what industry you're talking about? So there's three things that I always tell people. Um, first and foremost, the value of a clear value proposition for your business cannot be underestimated. You now have five seconds or less when somebody hits the homepage of a website to capture their attention and get them to take a next click. The power of your value proposition, and it's what business owners If they're starting a business, buying a business, growing a business, should be concerned about all the time. Because the way to cut through the clutter today in an incredibly competitive world is with a strong and well-positioned value proposition. We talk about that a little bit in the book. There's lots of great resources online to go look at how you position yourself, how you create clarity around that positioning. I highly encourage everybody to spend work there, do work there on how well you can differentiate yourself and really express the value of your offer. That's the first thing. The second thing I tell people is really profile quite clearly who you want to sell to and how they buy something so that you can reverse engineer a marketing strategy that works for that ideal customer. I work with a lot of startups and I work with people who are just bringing, you know, new products or services to market. And they try to be all things to all people. They don't have a clearly defined group of people that they want to be their first customers. And they're all over the map being very vague, trying to capture, you know, spread the widest possible net they can. And they don't do themselves a service. Because the thing you need the most of when you're first starting a business is customers. You need to validate your value proposition. You need to get customers in the door. You need to make sales. And the way to do that is to be focused and specific not broad and vague. So get that value prop locked down, model that best customer about how they buy something, and then map your tactics to that. Resist the urge to say, well, we could do radio ads, or we could advertise in the paper, or we could go to a a trade show, or we could build a really slick website. Until you really know how somebody buys something, you, you need to resist the urge to just spend the money on tactics that you think might work and really focus on what the customer is doing. And I think that's the best advice you can give to anybody these days in this very crazy world we live in because the Internet is not easy to understand. But start with your customer as the, as the essential point in your marketing, and you will always be successful when that's the starting point. It's tremendous advice. Marie Weiss, marketing expert, author, podcaster, and speaker. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. If you're just tuning in, this is Future City, and I'm Wes Moore. Coming up, a social media site that is marketing itself as the authentic alternative to Facebook and Instagram. 
is it all it claims to be? And does it represent a new shift in social media? Stay tuned. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company, a global flavor company helping teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat with healthy flavors through their Flavor for Life program. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Wes Moore, and welcome back to Future City. Today on the show, we've been discussing the future of the Internet and social media. And for our final segment, we're going to be looking at a company that represents just one of the many emerging social media sites that are changing the way we interact online. We're joined now by Eamon Hariri, who is the CEO and founder of Vero, marketed as an ad-free Instagram alternative. So excited to have you on, Eamon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Wes. So I describe Vero as an as a Instagram alternative. But, but how would you describe it, and what makes the product so unique? Well, um, you know, I, I would call it a social media uh, alternative uh, just generally, um, not really going after Instagram in particular, but certainly um, a, an alternative to all the, the different social networks out there uh, that are ad-driven and therefore uh, have algorithms that choose what users get to see uh, at what time in the day and, and how they interact with their, their content. We're very much seeking to be uh, an online social network that mimics the real-world social network that is just between people. Uh, that has existed for a very long time, and, and people know how to interact with each other in the real world. We're just providing them with a, a pure and clean version of that online. So when you think about how these other platforms work, I mean, they, they make their, their money on their ads. They make their money because people are willing to buy space on places where they know there will be a lot of eyeballs. What exactly is your business model, and, and how exactly do you think about the growth of what you're building? So our business model from day one has always been to be a subscription-based app. Uh, the reason for that is that we feel that that is the most honest and straightforward relationship that a service can have uh, with its users, making them the customer. And we want our users to be our customers. We're here to serve them. Uh, in ad-based models, the customers are the advertisers. And so what you're doing as an app developer is creating an environment that is there to extract uh, data from its users who are not the customers, but rather the source um, for them. And providing that data or providing that behavior, that insight to advertisers who can be uh, more direct and, and can target um, whoever they want with their advertising. I had nothing against ads per se. I mean, we grew up with ads. We, you know, when we watch uh, Saturday morning cartoons, we'd have ads that would tell us about the new toys that were out. And, and so it's very, it's very um, they can be very informative. But when you start to deal with this, uh, this technology that sits in everybody's 
hands and in their in their phones and on their different devices uh, that are with them all day, you can really gain insights into people beyond what they could possibly imagine. And, and that's where we drew the line. We said we would create a platform that would be an alternative to all that stuff that's out there, create an online environment that matches the real world, allows people to interact with each other in the most natural way that they know how, uh, not get in the way of that in any way, shape, or form. So all the content that's in people's feeds, for example, is completely chronological. And so we don't have to think about all the things that ad-based platforms need to do, uh, which is to maximize the amount of time that you spend on their, on, on their platforms. We just think to be the most useful, uh, positive tool uh, that we can be in our users, therefore our customers' lives. As a business, we are here to cater to users. We think about when you use something, what do you imagine the, the platform is um, keeping or saving or storing on your, on your behavior? So, for example, um, we don't know what, when our users use the app in the morning. You know, I, I wouldn't be able to – if you had a Vero account, I wouldn't be able to see – uh, when you s open the app and when you close it or or how much you scroll or what you hover over before you um, decide to like or comment or interact, uh, we just don't know that stuff. Uh, and, and that makes us very different from everybody else because we, we've chosen very purposefully to be um, as, as a light touch as possible. And, and store as little about our users as possible versus everybody else that actually does the complete opposite, which is to to get as much data as possible on their users. It's really interesting, right? And, and, and I'm fascinated as to, as to why you made that such a core part of your of your model, because data mining is something that is a such a core tenant of, of for, for, for these other platforms, uh, you know, you could have gone and made a commitment and say, like, we're not going to use data to go for advertisers because who don't have advertisers. You actually took it the step further and say, we actually just won't do data mining. Uh, why was that important to you? What, what did you see or hear as you were going through the platform to think about what things were going to be important to your customers that you made that such a core foundation of how you were thinking about the platform you were building? Well, when we started, we, we started and we wanted to build something that we wanted, that, that we thought would be great for ourselves and, and for the people around us. Um, I work with a very talented group of, of uh, engineers and designers, and we, we sit and we question things. And um, we're not afraid to do something that may seem more difficult, um, but we just know in our hearts that it's right. And when you're starting to build something at a time when you have so many uh, existing platforms, we weren't sitting there and saying, well, what can we do that's different just for the sake of different? We wanted to do something. Our decisions were more based off, off of doing something right. And we just knew instinctually, instinctively uh, that not having ads uh, would be a better experience. And we, we knew that if we were to build ads, if we were to go down the ad-based 
uh, model or, or path, we'd have to go down the data mining path. And we just didn't want to cross that line. And when you think about how you see this evolution taking place, when you think about what is the next 10 years look like uh, in, the, in the social media landscape, what do you see? Um, I see that the existing um, model, ad-driven model, data mining model is not sustainable. And the reason for that is that I see the effects on people's mental health, the way that they um, interact with each other in the real world because of um, these platforms. They've created this competition over things that are trivial. Um, Everybody, you know, people are trying to one up each other at at an age where, you know, some a lot of times at a young age where. Um, there, there isn't a, a complete understanding. They haven't really uh, figured out their place in the world and how to interact with each other. And these, these platforms are sort of getting in the way and affecting that. And I don't see that as being something that's sustainable at all. Um, I really uh, believe in, in the power of design, that it's a, it's a responsibility. Uh, you can either... Uh, go down the path of, of just making something that can make you the most profit, uh, no matter what the cost, or you can really be mindful about the things that you put into your product, any kind of product. Um, I could be talking about food, uh, as, as we all know, that path of, of processed food versus organic and how now everybody understands the power of that. And in software, it's the same. You can build things into your software that can be harmful to the users, or you can build things that are that you know are have a positive effect on on people and their lives. Uh, and so, I see in the next ten years that Vero is is going to is going to start the path, uh, create the path for others to not be afraid to build something that isn't based on data mining, that isn't based on ads, uh, where they can ask their users for a a very small uh, fee. And if they make it small enough, people will be willing to pay. And that's our our model. That's how we're going to to, to move forward. We're going to announce subscription sometime in the coming months. Uh, We'll we'll talk about how much we'll, we'll be charging. And it's very much going to be Uh, about something that's sustainable and that will sustain over the next 10 years. Eamon Hariri is the CEO and founder of Vero. And uh, we're really looking forward to seeing how not just the platform, but how this conversation continues to evolve. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Wes. Thanks for having me. So before we close this show out, I want to leave everybody with a few thoughts. And for people who have listened to the show, you know that I like to end every show with just some personal thoughts and a personal wrap-up of what we just heard. And when we're talking about things like the Internet and social media, we're talking about something that in a relatively short period of time have really become ubiquitous in the way that we live our lives and the way that we think about our lives and our future. And I'd like to use this wrap-up to talk about someone who for me has become ubiquitous and incredibly important, and that is our writer and producer, Katie Marquette. I talk about her this way and during this show because it is uh, heartbreaking for me that this will be the last show that Katie will be the writer 
and producer on for Future City. And I can tell you right now, if you enjoy this show, thank Katie. If you like what you've heard from this show, thank Katie. If you enjoy and appreciate the content and the guests, thank Katie. Because Katie has been the fuel and the fire behind so much of what we've been able to do produce with this show. I first got a chance to meet Katie as we were going through and thinking about who were the leaders and the producers and the, and the thought leaders that we wanted to have that I wanted to walk with in this process of being able to ask the question of, as we say, not just what's wrong with Baltimore, but what's next with Baltimore. And we knew that with that, we needed to find somebody who didn't just understand it intellectually, but who internalized it, who believed in the future of the city, who believed that our city can and should be everything that we hope it to be. And in Katie, I found a partner who doesn't just believe it, but she lives it, and so much more. I could not be more grateful. I could not be more thankful to not only have found a friend in Katie, but also someone who anytime and anything that she's doing, I'm ready to follow. Katie, thank you on behalf of not just the entire Future City team, but on behalf of the entire city of Baltimore. Future City is an original feature of WYPR. The show airs on the third Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and 9 p.m. Future City is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can explore past episodes online at wypr.org slash podcast central. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Wes Moore. Thanks for listening. Future City is sponsored by grants from Josh and Janine Fiddler and the Baltimore Community Foundation.